Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us again on another episode and helping us spread the word on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction, and also joining this, uh, this journey that we're on. We all have mental health issues. Uh, no one is immune to this. And I think that's one of the stigmas that uh, Amy and I are going to talk about today is um, I don't think a human being's ever lived uh, ever in the history of, of us that's not had some issues with mental health. Um, so today I'm really excited, super excited. I've known Amy for a while. She's one of many people that I have met that uh, I consider a friend, but I've never met face to face, which that is soon about to change. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. So with that, Amy Olseth is from the beautiful uh, part of our country, Boise, Idaho. I've never been to Idaho. But I know, Amy, people confuse Idaho and Iowa <laughs> all the time. I don't know if you get asked about corn. I don't know if you get asked about corn, but I get asked about potatoes all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to, I have to constantly uh, redirect and do a mini geography lesson and say, I'm over here by Washington. I'm the potatoes and the gems. Well, you have a, you have a, a wonderful part of the United States and part of the world, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here shortly. Um, well, Amy, I, I think you and I have a lot to talk about. I know, I know we could talk and we have talked for a long time, um, you know, off, off air on, on LinkedIn. Um, you've been on uh, a live stream with me with Patrick Moore, which we'll talk a little bit about Patrick and some of his, uh, some of his work. Um, and I think I'll throw this out. Like I do a lot of guests. Why do you think I drug you on the living undeterred podcast? (laughs) Well, I, I think that you're seeking perspectives and I, I think that you like to pull from a variety of specialties and walks of lives and experiences and that's how you've become knowledgeable in the field. So may, maybe I just think that you're interested in my perspective. Uh, I'm on the front line of a lot of this and I think it's a, a perspective we don't hear. We don't hear a lot about the, the nursing the nursing frontline of mental health and substance use. And um, then you add the intervention side of me and it's it's kind of a, I think mm-hmm. it's a cool perspective that I'm hoping provides insight. And you have a lot of great projects and you have a lot of great energy. And hopefully my energy that I put out to you, you, you sucked up a little bit. And I, I think we were meant to talk and meant I- to work together on some things. <laughs> Yeah, Is that I, sometimes why you, you just on? kind of feel like, yeah, <laughs> one of many reasons. Um, one thing I really liked, I think what attracted me to your content, obviously we met on LinkedIn where, you know, with COVID and everything, I think social media is where we meet everybody today. Um, but you have an edgy style to your presentations and to your your, um, your comments and your posts, almost where you're, you're kind of stoking, you're poking the bear a little bit. And I'm the same way. I, I, it's hard for me with ADD to just look for affirmation and post things that everybody likes. And I'm not looking for followers. I'm looking for people that want to make a difference. You know, there's some people that just like and comment and share. Then there's others that actually trying to make a difference. I see what you do as the latter. And, um, you know, sometimes you can get into some healthy conversations with people. I'll leave it at that. Um yes. And I like that, Amy. I, th- I think, you know, obviously the way we're doing things isn't working. Um, right. 
When my son Seth died of a heroin overdose on October 4th, 2016, 56,000 Americans died that year of overdose. You know the numbers. I don't have to tell you, Amy. You, you have ever, anyone knows the numbers, being on the front lines as an RN. Um, in 2020, it was like 96,000, I think. The numbers are still kind of coming in. That's, a, that's like a 72% increase from when my son died. What the hell is going on? We know more about this stuff than we've ever known in the history of society. What, what gives? Well, what, what's going on, Amy? I, I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And if I had the answers to what was going on, then I'd be, be much better equipped to fix it, for sure. Um, I think the one thing we do have to acknowledge about those numbers, because as much as I love numbers, I do tend to steer away from them a little bit, in all honesty, because I think that the way the reporting is coming in and the awareness and the scrutiny on the data is starting to increase as well. So I think it's clear it's getting worse to the true extent of when it started getting worse um, and, and how much worse. I don't think we have a clear handle on and won't for quite some time. And there's a lot of information overload, a lot of people using numbers. Um, and I don't think that mm -hmm. we were talking about it as much. So anytime you bring something to light, you know, reporting right. metrics can change and, and, and such. And I think deaths that were reported as something else previously are now being properly reported. Mm. So not to discount the numbers at all. Mm -hmm. um, but that's right. why a lot of people say, Amy, why don't you why don't you quote the data? Why don't you quote the numbers? And you'll notice a lot of times I stay, I stay clear of that. Um, because I, I, I can't, I, I can't get my head around the accuracy of it at all times. Um, but what I do know is what I'm seeing direct in my community. Um, I know what I'm seeing on front lines and I know the type of calls and inquiries I'm getting. To me, that's very tangible. And there's been a huge shift um, towards, it's not young people anymore. You know, it's not, it's not the, it's right. not, it's not just the Seths. Um, I'm, I'm seeing um, the ramifications now of the opioid epidemic that started in 2000. So, hmm. you know, it from use to recognition of disease to progression of severe disease, that can take a decade. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing now are people that have become dependent over years and now their use is escalating. Uh, and I think that that's a factor just based on the, the type of clients I work with. You know, this didn't just happen last year. You know, this has been going right. on for for a long time right. for them. And, you know, I could go on and on about Big Farm and, and opioid crisis and opioid epidemic, but prescribing restrictions are only getting tighter. Um, it's very right. difficult to find prescribers that will engage in narcotics or benzodiazepines. And so people that sought relief in those ways are now having to find alternative and less safe ways to, to deal with whatever their underlying condition is. So the medical I community the has a responsibility I here. I use the analogy, Amy, that it's like putting out a forest fire and we're running around with thimbles. And we're just dumping water on these little fires. And, you know, we go after big pharma and then something else happens. And yep. I've kind of um, 
philosophically when this first happened, um, and, and obviously, you know, um, uh, you're aware my wife passed away as well recently um, due to complications that I'll, I'll leave it, I'll leave it uh, private at this point, but I think people right. can kind of figure out after our son died, um, kind of how that effect had on her. Um, but if you look at the numbers across the board, across the board, I don't care what you look at, um, you know, quality of life, uh, you know, happiness levels, um, suicide, uh, overdoses, alcoholism, um, you know, mental health issues, um, you name it, all the numbers are higher. Uh, you'd have to really look hard to find some area of mental health that's improved. Now that doesn't oh, no. mean we quit, right? Everything I mean, is escalating. Obviously, obviously I've got, yeah, you're right. And, and so I, I always, you know, I got two boys, Ian and Roman still, and you know, I got two of my three for, from that perspective, I'm actually a very fortunate man. Um, you've met Steve Grant. He lost his only two boys to heroin overdoses. So, you know, there's always somebody that has it worse than me. And, and that's one of the driving forces in my life is to find similar people that we can talk about, not what happened to us, but the success stories that there's always, there's always a way to go back into your life and, and rewrite your past. You're not obligated to live in whatever misery was either, you know, bestowed on you either by accident or on purpose. You're not obligated to live there. And that's the that's one of the driving forces in my living undeterred mission is to get people to say, you know what, I, I understand you, you were an alcoholic, your, your, your son died, um, you know, um, you considered suicide. Yet all that's happened doesn't have anything to do with what's going on right now at this particular moment in your life or tomorrow. And and that's that's where I think as I do a deep dive into my journey, I'm coming out of it now a much better person, not a bitter person, as I like to say. So let me throw this out as a question to you: What what is holistic interventions? I I, I know what hol being holistic is, and I know what interventions are, but how does that go hand in hand? And, and and where do you see that as an important part of what you do day to day? Oh, thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Um, it's it's a term that I came up with um, because I couldn't exactly describe um, what I do, what what my mission is, what my purpose is, what my job is. Um, and when I looked at all the characteristics of what I do, it's really the most fitting term. And so holism or holistic practice it's a it's a specialty in nursing and it's also a term that's um used widely i mean i think we're seeing it more we're seeing it in treatment centers we're seeing it in mental health we have to treat a person holistically and what that i mean there's right. the definition and then there's how i view it and how i explain it to the people i work is i'm if you're coming to solve a particular problem um be ready to dissect it because nothing lives in isolation. Um, so a big part of what I do is breaking apart the pieces of an individual or a family's wellness um, from every angle. And there's, I mean, there's different schools of thought on how many dimensions of wellness there are. Um, but I go with about eight, eight different areas of life that can hmm. either be impacted by substance use or mental health or eight factors that can contribute to it worsening. So if somebody, I, I put it out there to, to confuse people a little bit, honestly, because it's not going to be a simple intervention. It's going to be a dissection of what's going on or we're not going to get anywhere. Um, 
I also, with the intervention piece, I, I think, and you can, you can tell me, but the majority of people I talk to uh, associate the word intervention as a pretty, pretty severe or uncomfortable word. Like you have to be really sick right. to get an intervention. Whereas in the nursing process, right. an intervention is simply what we do at a crossroad to make a decision. It's, it's just a point. Right. So right. I, I use the holistic to kind of soften the word. And I, I'm also doing, attempting with my content to destigmatize the word intervention because we use it in the medical community, the mm. nursing community, and it's a positive thing. Um, we would hope for a good outcome with an intervention. Um, so I kind of squash the two together to, to explain how I work. And that's that I look at everything, all the contributing factors, and then we come up with a plan. And that plan is intervening on whatever the underlying problem is. So long answer, um, it's how I identify as a practitioner that I, I perform holistic interventions. And that isn't always surprising somebody and swooping them off to treatment. I, I very, very rarely do those stereotypical type of interventions. It's a very well thought out long process for the family unit. Does that kind of make What's sense? The, um, it, it does, it does. And we talk a lot about collateral damage. Um, and I wanna ask you about that, about other family members, but how does how does the collateral damage concept affect you it affects me for sure um i you know i i posted on on linkedin just yesterday uh you know that i was having a poopy day and that it was just mm -hmm. like s some news came in and it was just the cherry on the poop sunday and um mm -hmm. i I experience, um, well, it's, it's, it's two things. One, it's secondary trauma for me that I have to process and I have to be accountable right. for. Right. Um, anyone that works in mental health or, or a caring profession and says, oh, I don't have secondary trauma. Well, I don't know where you're working, but we're all exposed to other people's experiences and we have to do something with it. It's okay that it happens, but we have to process mm -hmm. our, own, our own pile. Um, or it infiltrates our, our, our work, but the collateral damage or, or watching the impact on family members and community is, is another thing, Jeff, that's, um, I ache for all the parties involved. So it's not just the addicted that I'm attempting to reach and heal, but the enormity of the family dynamics that come out when this problem is addressed. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, I see why a lot of families don't want to address it because it's very painful. Absolutely. Um, very Absolutely. painful to bring it all Absolutely. up. Yeah. And so we went through that. Yep. I completely understand. Can I read something off your profile? I thought was interesting. Oh, goodness. Um, I got this off your profile. So <laughs> I just want to, I want to just read it. And then the people watching this, can kind of think their own thoughts, but I, I thought this was so appropriate because I I went through exactly what, what you say here. Um, I was told long ago that every good addict has a loving support system until they burn every last bridge and have nothing. 
The nothing could be symbolic or it could be deaf. I have found this to be true in every case and I've provided direct care to hundreds of patients and families. I read that on your profile this morning and I thought, wow, that is, that is so um, appropriate and so, for my life, so well-timed. Um, because, you know, I, if you go back and read my writings, I started the Living Undeterred Project in January, but I write a lot about collateral damage and how a frustration I had was that when dealing with an addict or an alcoholic, is this, this dual dynamic that they one hand can push us away, but then they criticize us for not helping. Yeah. And, and there's this, there's this, you know, there's this, these miles of distance in between what I just said. So they push us away. They call us judgmental. They say we're talking down to them. And then when we do nothing, then they say we don't love them and don't care about them. And as a, as a caregiver, let's call it for lack of a better word, although I was an alcoholic before I quit, um, it's frustrating as hell. It, it's the most helpless feeling in the world as somebody that is a, a fixer by personality, I, I like, you know, I like to fix things, to be in a situation where it's unfixable. Yeah. It's tough. So, yeah. and that's just my bubble. You deal with this, you deal with this every single day. I just, I admire what you do. And I just wonder how you find your why. I mean, what, is there something that obviously I don't want you to be personal um, on the show, but is there something that is in your past that made you just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go after this because you know, I don't want what happened to me, you know, that type of thing. Like, obviously that's how I live my life, but you know, where, where'd you find that inspiration to do what you do every day? Cause I have, I have utmost respect and admiration for what you do. It's, it's, it's so difficult to stay at task and to stay optimistic and positive when it seems like to me, there's more rejection and more <laughs> devastation in what you do than there is optimism and, and good news, right? Absolutely. Um, the why is very deep and multifaceted, um, but I can tell you it is yeah. a undeniable, um, continuous drive that even though I know mm -hmm. that the success rate on severe cases is fairly low, and I know that I work with um, a severity of illness in which many of the people that I work with, they might go to treatment, they might work a program, but they may never heal. And, you know, that's, that's very difficult, but I have hope in every individual until they no longer have breath. Um, and then after that, I, have, I still have hope for the family unit because they're part of it too. Um, I mm -hmm. have, and I've posted on this as well, like, do you have to be in recovery? Do you have to be an addicted person who's healed in recovery in order to successfully work with people that are suffering mm. from addiction? And, um, Good question. I, I think that that's, a, a, another stigma in the field that everyone that's a drug and alcohol counselor, everyone that's an interventionist or um, is an addict or is in recovery. And, and I am not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And right. Now I, I did grow up in, um, an alcoholic home environment. Um, I'm proud to say that my dad has over 30 years of sobriety 
Um, and I'm very proud of him. I know, right? <laughs> um, he, awesome. he, he got clean when I was 13 and that was, um, so obviously a very developmental age there. And, and I was very influenced by his mm -hmm. journey. Um, mm -hmm. but I also had, um, you know, and I don't want to get too, too personal on, on this mm -hmm. show. Um, I didn't mean to spring that on you either. No, that no, way, no. So. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's important. Um, I also had, um, a infant daughter who my first daughter died shortly after birth um, and put me into, as anyone can imagine, an extreme mental health crisis and prolonged grief for which I was prescribed yeah. quite a bit of medications. And I developed um, a dependency on benzodiazepines, um, hmm. you know, somewhat physician driven, um, but I wasn't doing any of the grief work alongside of it. And so I have firsthand, right. although I'm not, I don't identify as an addict, I do identify with someone that has used substances in lieu of doing the work to heal the wound. Um, and that process of dependency and withdrawal um, was very pivotal in my life, as was the death of my daughter. Mm. And that is what led me into a nursing career um, to advocate for patients on all levels um, mm. about their their choices, their options, um, different ways to heal. Um, I was a critical care nurse for the first 15 years of my, mm. no, first 10 years of my career. I worked in the intensive care unit. So I didn't initially go into mental health or addiction, but um, I always tell right. my students, because I teach nurses, I teach nursing students as well, when they say, oh, I don't want to do psych or I don't want to do mental health or I don't want to work with addicts. I'm like, well, almost every patient encounter that you have in a hospital or outpatient setting, there will be some mental health component. There will be probably addiction right. somewhere in the family unit. And so you can't just like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's part of nursing. And I gravitated right. in the intensive care unit to those kind of patients. So my, my draw You're, continued um... to, um, towards wanting to be on the prevention end of things. And even though I yeah. work with really um, severe cases, I still look at it as prevention because I'm trying to keep them right. out of a medical Prevent capacity. the next thing. Yeah. So the, the right. drive is huge. I can like, go on and on. <laughs> yeah. You know, I write, <clears throat> I have a, a quote I like to say is, you know, when, when you find your why, you'll find your way. And, you know, you and I both have a why. So our way, it's like the road opened up and I know the road. I don't know where the hell it's taken me, but I know the road I'm on. And yeah. again, as, as a secular human, I, I'm non-religious, non, you know, I don't, to me, it didn't fit my life. That, that to me is an internal driven, inspirational thing. And um, for those people that are non-secular, um, it could be a religious experience. And, and so it doesn't really matter what, what the reason is behind your why, it's find a why. Find a why. If you, one of the things I tell people that, um, that maybe are, are, are going through depression, you know, maybe not depression, I'm, I'm not a clinical person, so I don't know the terminology, but Someone who's floundering in their life um, hasn't really found a motivation or a passion. 
you just haven't looked deep enough to find your why. All of us have a why. There's, you know, it could be a death of a child like you and I have dealt with. It could be a divorce. It could be a death of a spouse. It could be a death of a parent. It could be a death of a pet. Look how many people go into rescues and things like that for animals because they, something traumatic happened to their pet. So we all have a why. We just have to find it. It's in there. And that's one of my jobs that I feel like I'm compelled to do is try to get people to pull that why out of them. Let me ask you something about harm reduction and the legalization of marijuana and also the psychedelic research out there. Um, I'm trying to find somebody to get on my show uh, that is an innovator or a researcher or somebody in the psychedelic space because I, full disclosure, I've never done psychedelics. I, I smoked marijuana two times in college and I threw up both times because I was drunk. <laughs> So I have no drug I have no drug experience yet I know that the inevitability of marijuana is coming and I tell my kids and all my peop- the young kids I speak to regularly just cuz something's legal doesn't mean you have to do it just cuz you're 21 doesn't mean you have to go out and get smashed that, that that's a that's a ridiculous stigma that I think parents have to start outgrowing is posting pictures on Facebook of your son or daughter at the bar doing shots of tequila is an embarrassment to the type of parent that you are, in my opinion. Um, you can share a glass of Cabernet with them, but there's no reason to post that on social media. It just becomes comical. Um, I got off track there, but going back to harm reduction, the legalization of marijuana and psychedelics, you know, we can fight this and say, no, 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 or we could say, I'm open-minded. I want to learn about these things so I can weed out the BS and take the good with me. So where, where do you stand on all that stuff? Oh, wow. Well, that's just a loaded one there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll start with- I um, told you, I have no outline. I just make up stuff in my ADD brain. I, I didn't approve this question. No, I, no I've, got, I've got it. So I'll start, I'll start with the easy one. So psychedelics. Um, I think that one's easier than- Okay. Than marijuana, actually. Um, psychedelics okay. so i i put a lot of effort into staying up with current research um trying to understand what's going on just so i'm not blindsided by clients because as you know um someone in active right. addiction can be quite savvy and manipulative and they'll start throwing research studies on me that i'm like wait what are you even talking yeah. about so it's part of my professional development and, yeah. and my job to stay up on things but with psychedelics, I am in, intentionally um, naive, if you will, because I don't think we have gotten far enough no. into it Me too. to know exactly what the impact's going to be. Now, I have read case studies mm-hmm. of, of people that have, with depression and, and complex trauma, where in, the, in a controlled environment, it has been effective for them. But what we don't right. know is right. exactly who it's going to be effective for. And so in a culture where we're right. all seeking instant things, um, we're still avoiding the underlying thing. We still need to do the work. Like you can be, you can get an antidepressant, you can get an hallucinogen, right. you can get a benzo. Um, I think we're trying to put band-aids, more and more band-aids on a wo- these wounds that we have as, as a as a culture and as individuals. And so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of more 
medication and I would put hallucinogens in a, you know, in a medical category. Um, now I think there will be yeah, a place absolutely. for it and I, I really hope it stays in the right hands. Um, and that's kind of where right. I stand on that. I'm kind of waiting and seeing. Um, but I also think that right. adolescents in particular, teenagers are, are grasping onto that as, see, I knew it was okay. Um, because they're not going yeah. to the scientific journals. They're hearing, oh, you know, hallucinogens no. <laughs> can be effective. And so now we've got a whole right. culture of information overload and the adolescent brain's going to pick out whatever's favorable. That's how they learn. Sure. Um, so right. they think, woo, you know, this can be helpful. So do you want a 16, 16 year old who has depression and suicidal ideation to be thinking that LSD or any hallucinogen might be beneficial? Yeah. Um, and right. so we have to look right. at how society is going to interpret it. Um, and I don't want any adolescent doing any sort of psychedelic um, for any sort of mental health problem uh, at all. No, I agree. I, I get you there. I get you there. And that's why I, I pose that question because I, I am naive as well. I have no medical background. My dad's a doctor. He's 88 and has been out of the industry for a long time. Um, but he's very knowledgeable in these things. But the research I see, obviously it's probably presented to me on a biased platform, um, depending on who I'm reading. Right. But it seems like there's some interesting research in regards to psychedelics for end of life, as opposed to morphine and things like that, mm -hmm. um, that can make people leave, you know, that can die with dignity and less pain and, and, and actually kind of have their faculties and not be just drugged up. Alzheimer's research, there's some yeah. early research that I can see out there. And then ADD, which then caught my attention because my son Seth had ADD, had diagnosed at 15, was given Adderall, and Adderall was the beginning of the end of the life of my son. And I'm not blaming the medical profession, no. but if I were to reverse engineer this all the way back to where I saw the beginning of his unraveling, it was that diagnosis at 15 for ADD. And I have ADD more than my son had. And I've never been diagnosed anything. I always kind of took ADD as I was lucky to have it. I felt sorry for the kids that weren't hyper and intense and <laughs> fidgeted. And I did. I, my whole life, I still feel sorry for adults that don't have the energy I have. And I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but it's been a superpower to me. So I'm teaching kids with ADD, screw what anyone tells you, dude. You are yeah, luckier yeah. in hell to have this because you, you, you can take energy out of kids. You sure in hell can't put it in them. And if you're born with it, it is your superpower. It is a and, and But again, it needs to be massaged. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be able to kind of turn it on and turn it off when you need it. You need to learn to how to tune it down, which meditation and things like that has mm -hmm. really helped my ADD immensely. So anyway, it's off, I don't know where I'm going with that. Topic, but have you ever read the book, and I can't think of the author, um, Hunter in a Farmer's World? I will. I'm writing it down. And I can't, I can send you I the author, not. Hunter in a Farmer's World. And it's about embracing how parents can okay. help their kids embrace the gifts of ADHD. Um, and my son has yeah. ADHD. And they are and, gifts. And yeah. we, we are honing the gifts versus trying to mm -hmm. squash the behaviors. Because when you rise right. anyone, 
when you pull the potential out of anyone, um, negative behaviors can often dissipate a bit. So it's been, um, you should read it. I think you would really like it. Yep. I will. But I'm not. But it's no different than taking someone. Who, <laughs> no, I'm going to get there. But it's no different than taking someone that doesn't have ADD and someone who has ADD. Well, someone who doesn't have ADD can have just as many problems, the fact that he doesn't have ADD, as mm-hmm. those that have problems with ADD. So again, to me, a label would be you don't have ADD. That, 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 that's, like, that's a label as well. Um, yep. So it just depends how, we, it depends how we frame things. And that comes from my stoic philosophy readings. It's all how we frame things in our mind. Our mind is so powerful. We can, the cognitive biases that are out there, the, the, uh, the stories we tell ourselves, like you say, we cherry pick data, we cherry pick we confirmation bias, all these things that, that go hand in hand with mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. All right, marijuana, your ah. turn. So I recently traveled. Okay, I'm going to start <laughs> with a story. Um, I okay. traveled to a few, a few states. Um, some of which have legalized marijuana, um, right. you know, more and right. more so. So I'm walking in, a, and I won't even say where, but I'm walking in, you know, it's middle of the afternoon. It's um, walking through like a city park, doing touristy type things. I was by myself, feeling like super independent, checking out shops, and just whiffs of marijuana almost on every corner. Mm. And who did I see? I saw families pushing strollers. I saw, um, you know, business folks. I saw um, couples. You know, this wasn't um, like a hippie bonfire. This was like just normal life. And, you know, it's no different than walking down the street with your beer cooler, right? Like we're all like, yeah. And I saw this yeah. in multiple places in multiple cities. And uh, particularly, I travel to Denver, Colorado a lot. And that's um, one of those where, where, you'll, yeah. where you'll see that yeah. quite a bit. And I'm thinking, yep. legal or not, what are we doing? What are we escaping from? This, you know, so we can't have that's open. A, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Open bottles. We, you know, there's open container laws. You can't just cruise down the street in some of these cities, you know, with your with your wine jug. Yet people are partaking and going out in the community. They're crossing streets. They're driving cars. Um, they're parenting their kids. They're working. They're handling money and food at restaurants. And I, mm-hmm. I don't see how that is at all acceptable. It's not acceptable with cigarettes. It's not acceptable with alcohol even. And uh, I'm really concerned for this movement of it's totally okay to smoke marijuana and go about your daily life. Um, Now, I'm not going to argue with people that drink in moderation at appropriate times with appropriate people and have appropriate actions. Nor am I going to fuss at people that follow that same principle with a legalized substance such as marijuana. But... There's no way I'm going to engage right. in any sort of discussion that it's safe to work, drive, care for minor children while you're under the influence. Um, it's just absurd to me. So I'm having a really hard time. Um, yeah, I. I'm having a hard time with it. No, I get it. I, I'm. 
I, I am too. And there's a particular reason why I named my nonprofit the Choices Network and not the I'm Sober Network or Clean Living Network. Or It's all about choices. And I was going to ask you something. Uh, have you read the book um, Mental Immunity by Andy Norman? So no. I'll recommend a book back to you. Okay, very um, good. It's called Mental Immunity. It, okay. It's a very clinical, kind of a deep written book that I'm listening on the audiobook version, but I'm not really hip with the guy they hired to read the to read the book. He sounds oh, like no. a it sounds like a computer generated it sounds like a computer generated type voice. Very, I don't know. Oh. I think it's less inspiring than if so. I may yeah, just go back to reading it. Too. Um, yeah, just it it just kind of like, dude, you wrote this great book, but the person reading it just is. I don't know. Anyway, so, but what he talks about in this book, and this is where I think I'm going to make a comment about what you said about marijuana, and I'm, and I'm in agreement with you, um, is building up, uh, we have mind viruses. We have things that poison our brains. We have things such as, you know, if it's legal, then I need to do it, or something where our, our, our approach is, is kind of backwards. And he talks about... Um, you know, do we as a society or maybe you as a parent or you as an RN, and, and maybe this is not a fair question to you because I don't know if you have much of a choice in this, but I do. Um, do I want to go after big pharma? Do I want to go after the drug cartels? Do I want to go after the states that are legalizing marijuana? Or as you said, do I want to go after the, the demand side of the problem? Why are these kids even doing these things in the first place? So we have a big vaping problem in Iowa. Um, I'm sure you do too in Idaho. Um, vaping in our high school, I think two years ago, they confiscated like, or three years ago when vaping just came out, like in one day over a hundred vapes. Now it's probably a thousand. But I, I tell my boys constantly, and alcohol is the best example, Amy. You know, Super Bowl, all these ads. You know, every day there's alcohol ads. Yet, just when you turn 21 or whatever age it is, 22, it certainly doesn't mean you have to go do it. And so with marijuana coming legal, I think if we can get more kids to think that way, hey, just because I go down the street and every corner selling it and, and my dad smokes it and my mom smokes it and there's commercials on TV, I certainly don't have to do it. I don't have to go to McDonald's and eat a Big Mac. Right. I, I certainly don't have to go to the grocery store and buy wine. So... How can we cherry pick and say, well, it's legal, so now and now I feel like I have to do it. And that's, a, that's where I think the sweet spot is in this whole thing. If we want to fix these, these numbers that are all going in the wrong direction, yeah. it's not that I'm giving up on middle-aged America or, or even college-age America. We need to get to the 12, 13, or 14-year-olds and figure out why in the hell are they deciding these things are good decisions, legal or not, um, when there's other ways to deal with the stresses of life, many more productive, efficient ways. Why? Well, you know, so I'm a demand. I'm a demand side advocate. I, I'm, 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 and that's and that's where Patrick Moore. That's where yeah, Patrick Moore really Patrick. hit my my. Yeah, yeah, because you know I read this this book after I met Patrick, and I've always been like, you know, I don't have the heart in me to chase big pharma. I just. I don't want to change the drug laws. I think the drug laws are the problem. I think the drug war on drugs has been a colossal failure. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you about my first thing about harm reduction too. I want to make sure we cover your thoughts on harm reduction. Um, but I'm a de I'm a demand side. I, I want to I want to try to figure out why people. I I know why. You know why they're doing it. It's to it's to it's less exploration 
and more escaping. Right? Yeah. Well, I think with adolescence, I think with adolescence, it can be exploring. Um, Oh, yeah. Adolescence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're they're prone to that. So that's where Patrick's work is so instrumental is getting to people yeah. about um, ahead of time about their own decision-making process, their own ability to be, um, to measure the benefit and the risk of their actions and start getting them thinking about yeah. the decisions they're making. Because if you are impulsive right. and you're, you are explore and, you know, talk about ADHD, a uh, high, higher prevalence of substance right. use, because, you know, you're, you're firing all the time. Um, and if right. you're not finding a way to channel that, or you're not seeing any negative consequence from using a substance, okay. Especially an adolescent. Right. Oh, I, I was fine that time. Right. Let me do it again, five times harder. You know, if one, if one joint was good, right. let me try five. I mean, it, it just becomes exponential right. in an adolescent mind. Um, and then I think it does become escaping for a, for a, a large pot right. of those kids, but I don't think it always starts that way. Um, and that's why I love, and that's why you, you know, and Patrick, I wanted you on, I wanted you guys on my live stream because I kind of, in my mind, and maybe I'm looking at this wrong, but it's like Patrick's working with that, you know, first set of, of kids coming up that haven't made those decisions yet, but those decisions are coming and you're working in the, in, on the onlines of those people that have made those poor choices. I mean, right. that, that's what you're spending most of your day in. So the combination of you two is like the ultimate company. It's like, you know, you basically yeah. could deal with any human being on the planet, the two of you, because you either are going to be before you make these choices or you're going to be living after you make these choices. Yeah. And I always say, you know, please, somebody what... put me out of a job. Um, I have, I have yeah, no exactly. issue saying, um, exactly. I mean, who, who wants, I mean, I, I like to do it because I, I, I can do it and because I believe everyone right. deserves a chance, but it's makes far more sense to get in front of it than to just deal with it at, at the end stage. Um, so but then when those slip through, when, when the millions of people slip through, you know, they need someone. there has to be people like you out there. Yeah. They, and, and you, you are a, um, I don't know what you, what you do. I see, I, I don't do what you do, Amy. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a dad in Iowa that's pissed off and I'm, I'm passionate and I'm in a position where with my previous career, which I retired pretty much immediately after Seth died, that I'm in a position where I can give back. I'm not doing, I'm not doing any of this for money. I've never made a penny on anything I've done in what I'm doing. I, I see ultimate authenticity. And I'm not saying this to toot my horn, but I, every single penny I've made on ev everything I've ever done, which is basically my book sales, have gone into my nonprofit, which I don't take any income from. Um, the Living Undetoured idea that, that I'm doing in May next year, all 50 states, I wanna raise a million dollars. I'm not making one penny on any of that. Anything that does come in is going in my nonprofit or it's going back to the 50 states. So. Why I brought that up, I don't know. <laughs> because it's awesome. ADD is a curse a position, and a blessing. <laughs> you're in a position to be able to do that, and you've recognized right. that. Um, I mean, you put yourself in that position by establishing 
a, a lucrative and successful business and you could very easily continue right, to chase right. money. Um, but you've taken that, right. that hard work and that fortunate part of your life and you're able to serve your passion. And, you know, not everyone is able to do that. Not everyone has that ability. So Most the fact people that you're can't, and I understand that completely. Right. right. And so the fact that you're right. out there willing to do that, I mean, I, I'm grateful because I, I can't do that. Um, not at this point. So the more people like you that are, are able to. Well, we can to be, together. That, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's, that's exactly, you hit the nail on the head, Amy. That's, that's why I think this podcast is so important. That's why what you post on, on LinkedIn is so important. That's why when I make posts, it's so important that we can start like a, like a, like a, a, a you know, I don't want to use a black hole analogy because that's negative, but it's like a, a force where we can pull people together and we can get the Patrick Moores and the Brian Walls and the Nancy Barrows and you and me and we can we can put ourselves together. And I, I am just in a position where I can literally go out now to the, the country and I can I can knock on doors. I can do all this without any aspirations for political office. I'm not raising money to enrich myself. It's like I, I want to hear stories about the people you meet every single day. And I want to use what I'm doing as a platform to shoot this out. So there's some young couple out there with a 15-year-old I don't want to ever have to have someone go through what I've been through. And and this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And I am in such a good place emotionally. I can't I cry and I, I'm, I'm sad and I go through all these freaking stupid grieving things that I'm told to do. But I am a happy person. I'm at peace. I, am, I love my life. I love the people I'm with. And... But man, it, it's painful. It's extremely painful. And I can only imagine what you deal with every day. I, I just, like I said, you know, I, I, I can shut this off. Um, you, you can't. I mean, you're, you're, you're dealing with people every day. And, and, and there's millions of people like you just in the world and, and hundreds of thousands of, of people that are helping others. And, you know, I'm going with this is, you know, the people in my life that I have lost truly die when I stop talking about them. And I won't, th I won't let that happen on my watch. And I have a feeling you're the same way. And where I was going with this before I got all emotional was that- it was so good, by the there's way. There's another person. Yeah. <laughs> there's another person out there like me that hasn't got that call yet. And I'm like, man, what can I do to get to that kid, to, to, to get them to realize that heroin's a really stupid freaking idea. And that, um, you know, putting something up your nose is not a good idea. And, and so I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a tortured soul, Amy. I'm, I'm very content with where I'm at. Oh, but you're man, there's so many people. There's so many people like us out there. And you're exhibiting very healthy 
responses and emotions. I mean, not that you need my validation, but I wouldn't expect you to be able to have a conversation like, like this and, and not have it bring up the emotions that drive your passion. I mean, that's why you're good at what you do and why you're going to have and have such an impact. Um, you know, you brought up reaching the kid, reaching the kid. And, and, and I, I totally agree with that. I, I get torn because we still somehow need to reach those parents because yeah, children are yeah. so, and Patrick might disagree some, and, and that's why I, I adore him because we can go back and back and forth um, about this. Right. But, and this is where I will talk about research. Um, what, what kids are trying first is, is alcohol and weed. Um, that's, and once, and I won't get into the gateway yeah. discussion, but once, yeah. once you open that up, the literature, the, the long-term literature supporting that they're more likely to engage in harder drugs in their early 20s. So mm -hmm. if we're looking at a normalized family where daily drinking is part of part of life, you know, dad gets home from work and drinks beers till he passes out and mom gets home yeah. and drinks wine. Yep. yep. You can still tap into kids and try to create some autonomy there, but it, you're working constantly like this yeah. if they're in that environment. Right. And that's where I, where I struggle. Right. Um, and, and where I try to right. want to provide education to, to parents. Cause I, I'm not sure that all parents out there that are doing that, you know, are addicts. I think some of them are in negative behavior cycles where they're just drinking yeah. just every day, yeah. just because. So maybe they don't meet the criteria right. to go into treatment, but they certainly meet the criteria to be a better parent. Um, the, what, what they're modeling yeah. is, um, well, of course it, you know, if that's what you see and all adolescents want to do is be adults because they don't understand that they're having a great right. time as is they want to be adults. Right. And if what adult equals is having a job and coming home and drinking cocktails, you know, we're, we're setting up an aspiration that when you become an adult, you drink. And right. so I don't know if just going at the youth is, is always going to work because we're like, again, and I think I look so much at the people that fall through, like, yes, if we can grab those youth yeah, and gotcha. make great yep. decisions, yep. bam, we need you talking to them. But what about all those that come through that net and they're living in these undesirable I, I yeah. think I think I can do a lot of work in regards to to parents that are, you know, not necessarily, like I said, alcoholics or addicts, but they're unintentionally escaping their own life and demonstrating escapism as the way to deal with stress. They're not demonstrating healthy coping. They're not so, coming home and saying, I had a really bad day. Yeah. I'm going to do some yoga. Um, you know, they're do you think do you think some of this stems from the fact that the default expectation of humans is a fantasy or an illusion? And what I mean by that is we wake up in the morning 
and we just think, okay, it's going to be uneventful. I'm going to just get up and go to the store. I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to call my parents and stuff. And, and that goes that way for, for a while. And then the inevitability of death shows up on your front doorstep. And you've been, for kids, they've been coddled and protected. And, you know, we, we have books on everybody poops, but we don't have books on everybody dies. And so we don't teach kids on death is part of life. And so it's a traumatic experience. And so we have this default expectations where we just don't expect things to happen. And all these things that happen to us, I write in my most recent blog about this. Um, there's never been a human being on the, in the history of humans that hasn't had some grief or trauma or something happen to them. So what makes you think you're unique or you have some special deal with some somebody where you can avoid all this? And I think the thing I learned, I had Mike, Antarctic Mike asked me on a, he came out and did a documentary a month ago or so before my wife died and asked me, what's the one nugget you would give Jeff? The one word you would give to increase the well-being for humans. And I thought, well, shit, that's a, that's a big one, you know? Whoa. And yeah, I mean, give me, give me a harder one next time, Mike, will you? Um, and I thought, um, okay, I know what it is. I know what the answer is. Preparedness. Prepare for the inevitable chaos and unfair and unjust and unkind curveballs that life is going to throw at you. It's part of living. It's part of the deal we made when we were born. Yep. Yet, I don't think that that's how people look at life. I think they have imposter no, syndrome. We have to fix it. Uh, parents have imposter. Yeah, and they, and it, everything's a quick fix and. Mm -hmm. And um, nothing will ever happen to me. You know, you know, my kids aren't going to die. My, my spouse isn't going to die. My parents aren't going to die. And, and, and it's like Mike Tyson said, uh, everybody has a great plan until they get punched in the, in the mouth. Yeah. And I think our inability to cope with the inevitability of what happens in life is one of the big problems that we have as a society and social media and all these things are not helping. Thoughts on that? I, I, I agree. Um, one of the things, um, that I do, um, I can just speak for myself and I encourage this with my families I work with is it is okay to show and share unpleasant emotions with your children. Uh, children don't have any issue throwing a tantrum or being mad or being sad. They're, they're innately very expressive. You know, and, it, and at some point right. we temper that, you know, oh, don't cry or don't do this. Um, yeah. And we model that as well. Um, if right. I have a bad day, you know, my, my boys are young. They're, they're, my youngest is about to be seven and my oldest is 10. So, I mean, I, I mm. make it age appropriate. But if right. I have a bad day, I have a choice, you know, I, I guess I could take a pill or booze it up or go isolate myself right. or I can come home and say, right. which is very vulnerable and sometimes difficult and sometimes they know if you're not okay. Right. So to say, boys, right. You, know, right. you know, mommy's a nurse, mommy had a hard case today and I'm feeling, I'm feeling mm -hmm. kind of powerless and I, I'm feeling kind of upset and it doesn't feel good. And and, and it's okay. And can I have a hug and showing that positive, mm -hmm. um, not putting your crap on your kids. I'm not suggesting that, but right. it being right. okay to not be okay. 
we have this society where it's right. like, oh, everything has to be pleasurable and happy. Well, who says? I mean, not the life I've lived. Everything yeah. hasn't been pleasant and perfect. <laughs> um, and Nancy, we don't Nancy have to Barrows, our Nancy Barrows said, I know you know Nancy um, and Nancy Barrows, and she said um, something like, uh, "There's there's comfort in the discomfort zone, or something to that effect." where where you can find comfort in discomfortable situations or I, I'm not sure how she phrased it, but that's kind of what you're saying is showing vulnerability. And you know, I, I just broke down and cried. I have an overwhelming sense of of awe and reverence for death and life. And um but for me it's like using the restroom. It's it's just a daily thing for me. And I'm, I'm, you know, as a man, as a 55 year old male, I cry in front of people all the time. And I am now starting to see some of my male friends exhibit more open feelings. Um, right. Almost like I open the door. I open the door for them that, hey, it's okay to feel like crap and cry. But, you know, we need to just put that in a box quickly and move on. Now, I don't mean move on as in forget, but move on as absorb into our story. And I, I write about that frequently and I, and I know I talk, I watch, I, I, I read your stuff. And at one point you had talked about something about the grieving process isn't getting over it. That that's a, that's a stigma. You know, I don't, I don't want to get over it. I, if anything, just the opposite. I want to be out chasing it. You know, I want to, I want to have it pulling me in a positive direction. And that absorb word always sticks in my head. It's like, I want to absorb all the things that happened to me in my life. And I think what I'll do as I wrap this up is, what, would, what advice would you give to people out there watching this podcast that are really struggling, Amy? What, what, what words of wisdom? Obviously, if they're not near you and they can't get a hold of you, obviously people can get a hold of you and ask for some help. But if they really want to get some help, what 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 what? How do you how do you get this down to a, a couple things to say to people to help them off the ledge? So there are so many resources out there um, that we're afraid or resistant or unaware of to utilize. Um, it takes a lot of courage, especially when you're in a bad spot, right? So you're depressed or you're using or you're in a shame and guilt cycle takes a lot of courage to reach out to someone, anyone. And so it seems like ridiculous to say, well, if you're struggling, ask for help. But it truly is mm -hmm. the most pivotal thing that one can do. Because once you share that with somebody else, right. it, it begins to lose its power. It really does. And so um, just mm. as simple as yesterday, I, like I was having a very bad day and I simply reached out to someone and said, I am not. And it wasn't my best friend, my mom, my spouse. It was a, right. a friend. Right. I said, I am not right. okay. And just getting validated and getting that, that emotion I was having began to lose power and I started to get empowered again. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. my... Um, my website has tons of free resources that, you know, helplines, support groups, etc. There are things now with telemedicine that can be very 
if you can't walk into an AA group, which I understand takes a lot of courage, there's anonymous online groups where you can hear other people's stories or share yours as just a voice. Right. And any sharing right. of that is a positive step. Even if you don't make any other changes other than speaking the truth, you're starting to get real with yourself. Right. And you can you can go with that. Um I, I had someone ask me on LinkedIn today, they said, well, what about the people that don't have money for treatment, Amy? What about, you know, insurance doesn't always pay for things. And I say, that's what I do. Right. I, get, I, I get creative. And yes, my assessment piece costs money, but not a lot. And with that, right. you get right. a slew of options and it's not always going to treatment for 30 days. And so yeah. anything that I can do to, tell people that the stigma of you have to put your hand up and say you're an addict and then go to treatment, lock yourself away in some right. shameful environment. Yeah. There are other ways to right. do it. There are other ways to get well. Yeah, there are. And there are people yep. like you and I that know what it that know what it's like to feel at the bottom. Um mm -hmm. and aren't going to judge. We're out there. There's tons of us out there. Do, so, What's the best way for people to reach you and to learn more about what you do? Um, we're all about connectivity. So, um, you know, throw out there how people can get a hold of you, Amy, because I'm sure after this, you'll have a lot of people that are, you know, at a minimum be wanting to follow what you do on social media. Yeah. So the only, the only social media I'm really active on is, is LinkedIn and I, I put a lot of effort into getting to know the people that engage with my content. And I love when people DM me and, and ask questions. Um, it doesn't always result in retaining my services, but I can really point people in the right, right direction, um, or at least offer some words of, of hope. So I would love it if anyone watching would, would follow me on LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, I mean, I answer my comments and I answer my DMs. And if I think that I can help you on a professional service level, I'll, I'll let you know. And if I can't, I'll let you know right. and I'll give you some resources. Um, my website's loaded, holisticinterventionist.com. It's, it's loaded with resources that I update that clients have found useful. I've been on it, yeah. So it's got a lot of different, you know, it's not just all the stuff I like. It's stuff that... Uh, I tried to take a sampling of what other people have told me have been helpful. Um, if podcasts are your thing, well, they're on I, there. I wanted books, etc. I'll have all your contact information linked to my stuff as well. But I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for coming into my life and for um, you know educating me on these things. Like I said, I'm I'm just a dad from Iowa that's pissed off. <laughs> Um, and I want to make a difference, you know, and, um, I'm, I'm a sponge. I, I don't, I have more questions than I do answers. Um, so do I, though. But so I do am I. definitely, that's a yeah, good thing. I'm definitely excited about the future, the living undetoured U.S. tour next summer. I'm so excited and I'm happy that you've, uh, be become a sponsor for the state of Idaho. You're my key contact. So I will be meeting you at some point when I yeah. go around the country next summer. I cannot um, wait to introduce you. We're going to raise you. a lot of awareness. 
Oh, I, I can't I, wait I got excited. I, I, I can't I, wait to introduce you to some of some of the amazing people doing work here in Idaho. Um, we, we've got stuff going on that I want you to see. So I'm I'm really excited for for all the states to get to meet you. Well, together we can make a difference, certainly. And um, like I said, I, I just think we're getting started. After the tour is over, I've got other projects. I've got bigger and better things to raise awareness and. I want to meet people like you that I've not met. I want to meet the innovators, the big, the free thinkers, the, you know, the, the investors. I want to meet the entrepreneurs. I want to meet the frontline RNs, the people that are in the trenches. So with that, um, thank you very much, Amy. I enjoyed this. It was an honor. And um, oh, likewise. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about our paths crossing shortly. Um, again, thank you very much for being on the Living Undeterred podcast. Thank you, Jeff.